There has to be some common sense. Yes, sir, they have the car stopped at 10 and branch microbiome. We still don't know who pulled the trigger. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Police Off the Cuff, Real Crime Stories. I'm your host, Bill Cannon. I'm a retired NYPD sergeant with 27 years of service. And with me tonight, retired NYPD detective and straight out of Brooklyn, Phil Grimaldi. How are you doing today, Phil? I'm doing pretty good, Billy. How about you? I'm doing well. You know, there's a lot of um, uh, things going on in this case. I think that uh, podcast listeners need to have explained to them some of the things I don't... um, I mean, I understand, but it's it's things that we would ask questions about, you know, and some of the things that we're going to ask questions about. One of the things, of course, comes up is is extradition, waiving extradition. Why is there extradition? Uh, the fact that um, Marcus uh, spoke in court. He uh, had his hearing the other day. He spoke. We got to see him. Some of the things being said in regards to this case, we're going to discuss whether or not it's helpful to the eventual prosecution. What is taking them so long to come up with the, uh, the cause of death, the manner of death? Uh, so far, I would imagine Monday the autopsy was conducted. I, I know that they'll have a manner and cause of death, but as yet it has not been released. So everyone is expecting that they're going to hear uh, about it soon. And my feelings are that the law enforcement uh the uh, law enforcement office, the FBI, and the um, the jurisdiction that's handling this, they keep, have been keeping things very close to the vest, and they haven't been releasing things. And I could see them holding the manner and cause of death until they file for extradition, until he's in fact going to get extradited. And they'll use that as extra ammunition in the extradition report to get him extradited. Uh, expeditiously thoughts billy uh, i think that the uh, uh you know the cause of that is going to be determined obviously by the uh medical examiner's autopsy the manner of death is clearly going to be a homicide she didn't die of natural causes we don't think this was an accident or anything like that so i think it's it clearly going to be a homicide um the fact that uh, the Santa Rosa County Sheriff Bob Johnson, he made a statement saying that the body was intact when they recovered it in the grave. Uh, and uh, he also made uh, remarks that it, uh, investigators obtained uh, evidence to form a great case against Marcus. Now, I think that uh, that reading between the lines a little bit tells me that uh, the body was intact. It doesn't seem like there was any signs there was uh, he also said there was no obvious signs of trauma uh to the body so that would mean no obvious signs of blunt force trauma no signs maybe of bullet wounds or stab wounds so uh you know we're going in the direction of there's a, a large majority of domestic violence homicides that where strangulation is employed think that's where we're going to go with this one. Can't say for sure. Don't know the results of the autopsy. It hasn't been released, but it's just an educated guess based on my prior experience. I'm sure you feel you might be in the same camp uh, from your experience. So uh, we'll have to wait and see exactly. But I think definitely a homicide and possibly a strangulation. Bill, I, I totally agree with you on both of those fronts. I believe it's uh, going to be ruled a homicide. Um Cause the cause of death. Um, I I think that it's most common in domestic violence incidents uh, to have asphyxia or strangulation. You know, and uh, where is the crime scene? Where did the murder actually take place? And again, are we jumping the gun right now and calling it that? Somewhat, but we're we're, we're pretty uh, we're based on our experience and the facts and circumstances here. Uh, it's pointing so clearly uh, to a murder. So one of the things we ask, one of the things everyone in the chat and everyone listening to this case, following this case is, what is the jurisdiction that will prosecute this case? Where can they actually determine that the murder took place? And I'm just going to interject this. 
the folks that don't know, usually the uh, place of occurrence is where the body's recovered. However, there's a lot of facts and circumstances that may indicate that the murder didn't happen at the place where the body was found. So, Phil, you want to interject your feelings in regards to that? Yes. Uh, before I get into that real quick, uh, we're making the assumption that it's going to be a homicide because there are just several classifications when a person dies. Homicide, suicide, natural causes, and accidental death. Obviously not a suicide. She wasn't despondent, not natural causes. She was at an age where she didn't have any illnesses or anything. And, you know, accidental, I doubt it very highly. He would call the police if it was an accident. So it's probably going to be a homicide, clearly. Um, you know, manner uh, of death is going to be another uh, topic that we'll probably cover when the autopsy results are uh, released. With regard to the crime scene, obviously, Billy, um, it sounds like they, based on that uh, uh, Sheriff um, Bob Johnson statements, that a, uh, uh, a lot of ev evidence was uh, obtained to form a great case against Marcus. Now, they may know exact location of where the homicide took place based on evidence that's been recovered. They may not. It doesn't seem like, I, I agree with you on that point, Billy. I don't think the homicide took place in the barn where her body was recovered. I'll agree with you on that. Um, it's incredibly um, uh, disturbing that we even have to be talking about this. This seems like a case that really could have been prevented. It's just, uh, it's very, very touching to both of us. All of our listeners uh, quite upset about it. And I just wanted to make one other point, Billy. Uh, last week when we did a show on, on domestic violence, when we had Leslie Morgan Steiner on, she made a point of, of giving us a, a statistic and it fits right into this case. Over 70% of murders regarded to domestic violence happen after the victim has left the relationship. Obviously, in this case, they had been apart, and that's when this uh, horrendous uh, homicide took place. So, I, there's, there's, we're going to have to do some follow up about domestic violence, Billy. We already talked about that, and I think that uh, we have to shine a light on this. You know, this has to be brought into the forefront. Uh, you know, it seems like there was things put in place after, you know, the uh, uh, Nicole Brown Simpson and the, uh, you know, the whole thing with OJ. So. Um, I think maybe there needs to be a, a refresher on this, so to speak, that uh, we got to shine a light on it. And um, one case is too many cases. MJ777, interesting since two states are involved, actually three, Absolutely. Florida, Alabama, and Tennessee. We don't know if, in fact, if he dragged this trailer through Tennessee, uh, we just know that the body wound up in Alabama. We know it was taken from Florida. She was taken from Florida. Many of you in the chat are saying, oh, it's easy. The, the murder took place in the trailer. Very, very possible. This, the, the trailer was made... mobile. We, I mean, just because it took place in the trailer. Where was the trailer when, you know, the, the actual homicide took place? So we really don't know that. Investigators may know, but us uh, right now, we're not having access to the uh, case folder, don't know. It sounds like she would not have voluntarily went with him anywhere. Absolutely. So there's a good possibility that she was forced into the trailer. Uh, where maybe people couldn't even hear her screams. It was later at night. Uh, you know, so that's a good possibility. So where is the crime scene? Who prosecutes this case? Many, many questions. I'm going to play a little bit of uh, Marcus, his, um, his arraignment. And, uh, and then we'll, 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 we'll talk about this after I play a little bit of this. Willing to waive extradition? More now on the man at the center of a murder investigation. Marcus Spanavello not quite ready to leave Tennessee and face the music in Santa Rosa County, Florida. Deputies say he was the last person to see Cassie Carly alive during a custody exchange of their daughter in Navarre Beach. And today in court, Spanavello getting emotional as he talked about that little girl. Are you willing to waive extradition? Marcus Spanavello will spend at least nine more days in a Tennessee jail. Spanavello was picked up there on Saturday during a traffic stop. Investigators say he was the last person to see Cassie Carly alive. The two were near this restaurant in Navarre Beach for a custody exchange of their four-year-old daughter. 
Carly missing for six days until investigators found her body in a shallow grave inside this barn in Springville, Alabama, just northeast of Birmingham. The barn, according to Santa Rosa County Sheriff Bob Johnson, has some connection to Spanavello. But Johnson says Spanavello has not been charged directly with Carly's murder yet. I can tell you this, he was totally uncooperative. He never cooperated at, at all with us. Um, and that goes a long way. I mean, you think about it, it's, it's your baby's mother and she's missing and you're not gonna cooperate with authorities. That's kind of telltale. He is facing charges of allegedly tampering with Carly's cell phone and lying to investigators about her disappearance. Spanavello choking up while in court, explaining to a judge just why he's fighting extradition. I'm just trying to get to make sure that my daughter is taken care of with the people that um, that I'm leaving her with. In the meantime, Ray Ann Carly says she's fighting for custody of her sister's four-year-old daughter, adding that Carly's legacy will live on through Sailor. She will shine through Sailor. That is the one good thing we are looking forward to. We will always have a piece of Cassie with Sailor and look at her and be able to remember Cassie's bright smile that just lit up the whole room and hear her laugh in our hearts and keep her memory on. Now, Spanavello will be back in court April 13th to review that extradition status. So there you have it. Uh, well, fo some folks asked what was his connection to that barn. Uh, that was answered. Apparently, he was doing work on a house that was about 1,000 feet from that barn. So he's doing some renovations. So that was his connection to that barn. Uh, so there was some incorrect information in regards to maybe his family owned it. That was never confirmed. He was, in fact, doing some work at a house that was uh, just down from that barn. I think the connection just needs to be made. How did her body wind up in that location and tie him to that location? Now, obviously, that connection's been made. Billy, real quick on the what we're talking about, the jurisdictional uh, you know, territories of who's going to uh, be prosecuting the case. Uh, at this point, because it's multi-states, the FBI could actually, uh, you know, this case could go federally if they can, you know, uh, articulate that uh, the crime took place in one state and then the continuation of the crime was into another state, which if she was, the crime scene was actually in Florida and then she was brought to, uh, uh, to Alabama. Uh, I think that, you know, obviously that uh, connection can be made, but uh, that remains to be seen. Um, I would just want whoever is going to try the case to have the most information and the stiffest penalty that this guy could get. Uh, that that uh, news uh, press conference that you just played, his arraignment, uh, he's trying to already make himself out to be a victim by, uh, you know, choking up when he speaks about his daughter. If he cared so much about his daughter, would he have killed her mother? That's the question I have for him. And I'm sure the judge saw right through that uh, that uh, phony baloney uh you know, I'm the victim, uh, you know, uh, act he was trying to put on. So uh, I'm not buying it. I'm sure you're not buying it. And I'm sure the judge isn't buying it. Folks, on the screen is a picture of um, Cassie's car, which was recovered. And in the car was uh, her phone and her, uh, excuse me, not her phone, her, her pocketbook her with a lot of personal items. And they were surprised to find that there. Uh, it was recovered, uh, I believe, the next day uh, on the 28th. She was first, uh, that's when she was first reported missing on the 28th. In fact, the meet was on the 27th. Uh, she was reported missing by her father. And it, uh, I, I stand corrected. Cassie's car was found on the 29th uh, in the Juana Pagoda's parking lot. A person was left in the car and that uh, sort of alarmed investigators because what woman that, that we know or anyone knows doesn't take a purse with her? So that was quite concerning. When we talk about the trailer, it's a, a distance photograph that you're seeing on the screen, but that's that large trailer you're seeing there, which many believe, and there's no evidence right now, many believe potentially that could have been, and here's a better shot of it closer up. Billy, could you put the one, I just want to make a quick point about the location of the trailer as opposed to the location of the restaurant, the next one. Okay. Now the restaurant 
is in the middle of the photograph. Their green roof there. That's where the restaurant is. Now, if you look at that picture, it doesn't look like a, a large distance, but it is actually quite a distance away from the restaurant, from the parking lot. There's nothing else in that area. The closest thing would be these homes that are in the front of the picture. So again, if he was doing something nefarious and he wanted to be uh, away from everyone, uh, that picture shows a great uh, spot where, uh, you know, if the, the, the sounds could be muffled. Uh, if there was a scream or something like that, it's kind of in a, in a desolated area. We don't know if this picture is before, after, or during the actual uh, abduction of Cassie. But uh, I think that's just a, a point that I think needed to be made that, you know, why isn't he parked close to the building where the restaurant is? You know, he, he's like right in the middle of nowhere if you look at that picture. So, again, uh, this is stuff that's going to be brought out in court. And, uh, you know, I think that uh, all of these little pieces of evidence will lead to uh, a big piece of evidence, which is going to be conviction, hopefully. Folks, one of the things that we uh, and some people have uh, mentioned in the chat was on several occasions, um, Sheriff Johnson has referred to him as a dirtbag. And I understand that. And I think those of us in law enforcement understand that they've dealt with this case right from the beginning. They know things that we don't know. However, it's not a professional thing to do, and I'll tell you why. This case inevitably is going to go to trial, and some defense attorney is going to play those videos at the trial and say, look how they just focused on a single individual because he was a convenient target, and look at what they're calling him. And that, that'll be brought up in court. So you, when you when you say these things, especially on television, you have to realize that you you can't take it back. You can't say, I didn't say that. It's on video. So you even though you may want to call this guy every name in the book, you have to hold back and remain professional and not say that. And again, I do not want to criticize Sheriff Johnson. I think he's done a brilliant job. His major case unit has worked tirelessly for seven, eight days right now. Multiple warrants across three states, multiple jurisdictions. So I don't want to criticize him, but I'm just saying professionally, you got to hold back from calling potential uh, defendants, uh, you know, mutts or uh, dirtbags, you know, and then even say that he should get the needle. I mean, you know, every defense attorney hears that is salivating that that was said. Uh, Bill, I got to comment on that. And I agree with you. Uh, you sounded like Joe Murray there for a second in a courtroom because, uh, yeah, it's it's going to be ammunition for a defense attorney to say they were biased against my client right from the beginning. Now, I understand and I'm going to salute and tip my hat to Bobby Johnson, the sheriff of Santa Rosa County, the FBI, all the investigators, his major case team. These guys worked tirelessly from the minute that she was reported missing until now. And they got a lot more work to go going in the future. Now, again, sometimes a lack of sleep. The, the, the sheriff said that, that these guys traveled 1500 miles in a few days uh, all over the map. They were trying to track this guy down, do the best that they could do, try and find Cassie. So your emotions sometimes will get the best of you in a case like this. And I think it's clear he had to make the notification to Cassie's family that she was found dead. And I guess with all of that being said, being tired. He let his emotions get the best of him. But Billy, you do make the point. We have to try and remain impartial. We have to try and remain uh, professional in cases like this only because uh, it could play out in court down the line a year and a half, two years from now when there's a trial. Like you said, a defense attorney may capitalize on that. And I don't think that uh, it's going to damage the case in any way, shape or form. But why even have that little bit of ammunition that a defense can use against um, a prosecution in a case like this? So, uh, again, hats off to those guys. We're not criticizing them. We understand it. We've been there. We know what it is to be up for three and four days without sleep, uh, you know, trying to get justice for victims. So I sympathize with that. But again, uh, you made the point, Billy, and uh, it's not proper, so to speak. But, uh, we were, you know, for us as, uh, you know, retired, uh, detectives, law enforcement, law enforcement officers, and we're doing a podcast, we could say whatever we want. We think he's a dirtbag. We do think he's a scumbag, what he did to this young lady, but, uh, we're not on the inside of the case. So, uh, hopefully now maybe a cooler heads will prevail. Everybody will, uh, get some rest because he's in custody. Uh, she's been found and, you know, we can, uh, take a, uh, 
a little bit of a breath, although there's a lot of work going forward, I'm sure. Folks, this is Police Off the Cuff, Real Crime Stories. If you like this podcast, please go on our YouTube, hit the subscribe button, give us a thumbs up, ring that bell. And if you want to support us, we have a Patreon with three different levels. And the folks you see with the green font in the chat are part of our YouTube family. We have five different levels of YouTube, and we could use your support. And if you like this podcast, we uh, we hope you do that. One of the things I wanted to mention, folks, and uh, we describe every aspect of, of the investigation. Uh, uh, Dazzlin Diva, no, there has not been an, an update. We opened up with that. I'm sorry, Dazzlin Diva, there has not been an update yet on the autopsy. We're waiting for that. Everyone's waiting for that. Uh, my feelings are that they may not release it for a while based on the fact that uh, they may use it in their petition to extradite him back to uh, Santa Clara County. So that's that's my feelings. It could. I'm sure they know, the investigators know, the officers know. I want to talk about what led them to that barn where they discovered her body. And then once in there, uh, the biggest crime scene that people don't totally understand is the body of the victim. That tells a tale uh, where photographs and other things can't. It tells a tale because we talk about trace evidence and exchange of evidence, evidence transfer. And potentially, if she was strangled, she could have fought for her life and potentially could have DNA under her fingernails. Um, the fact that, you know, the body was, uh, they said it was a shallow grave and apparently very much intact. They could look into the eyes and see something that's known as petechial hemorrhaging. And that is an indicator of asphyxia or strangulation. So, and it's not a slam dunk that, oh, she has petechial hemorrhaging. That means she was strangled. That is one indicator of it, you know. And the body, the body was... Uh, you know, for a while. So it would be rigor mortis setting in. Uh, there's all kinds of things that indicate how long a person was dead. The first thing that happens uh, when they do discover the body is the, their crime scene unit comes and they photograph it and they, they make sure that nothing's moved. They collect all the potential evidence they have. And after that, there's someone else who comes that are known as medical legal investigators. And they work for the medical examiner's office. Very big cities and uh, most jurisdictions have medical legal investigators that work for the medical examiner. However, smaller towns sometimes have coroners that aren't as sophisticated, aren't as well-trained, and aren't as credentialed as medical legal investigators. So then the body is processed from a scientific, uh, uh, you know, right from the scene. The temperature is taken. Again, uh, photographs are taken, close-up photographs. And they, they collect whatever they have to collect, but pending autopsy. And they, they get the body ready when they take it from the scene uh, to be prepared for autopsy. I hope I explained, this, uh, explained it as good as a non-scientist or a non-crime scene person can. But that's what occurs on the scene. Billy, I just want to expand a little bit on what you said. First off, the location where the body was found. I believe he had been tracked to Alabama previously when they engaged him and they found that he had Sailor with him. So there must have been a connection. And uh, we're going to not even talk about the cell phones because the cell phone technology could have put him at that location. But bearing, uh, barring that, if I were an investigator and I knew that he was in that location and he was doing work, I would go there and I would want to search the surrounding area specifically for something like what they found. There was uh, maybe it was a, a deserted barn and uh, they went inside. They saw that there was some earth that looked like it had been disturbed and they discovered her body. Now, like you said, uh, a methodical, uh, investigation takes place when you think that there's a dead body uh, in a shallow grave. So like you said, pictures from afar and from up close, and then slowly they would try to, uh, you know, uh, expose the body. And again, examination uh, pictures would be going forward. And you talked about the particular hemorrhaging in the eye. There's also something indicative when a person is strangled, there could be hyoid bone that would be fractured. There would be marks around uh, some type of a, uh, maybe sometimes there's even handprints from uh, strangulation. So things like that might be photographed. And then again, once the body is removed back to the 
medical examiner's office or the coroner's office. Then they would do the actual scientific examination to see if the, you know, x-rays to see if that hyoid bone is uh, damaged and uh, if there is any uh, marks. There could be uh, touch DNA on the victim's body from the perpetrator. So the, all of those things will be examined. And I think that uh, the fact of the press conference yesterday that they were saying the body was mostly intact, uh, not mostly, they said the body was fully intact. And um, I think that that is going to leave us the possibility to recover DNA from, like you said, under her, under her fingernails, if there was a struggle or if there is touch DNA, or maybe even possibly could be a transfer of blood from the perpetrator to the victim. Suman Shri, Sergeant Bill, this is Florida, and we like police making a strong stand against bad guys. And be aware that the police is tough. The sheriff represents the state, so he speaks for the rest of us. Suman Shri, I totally agree with you. I'm just telling you from my experience, when you make statements like that, it taints the prosecution. It really does. And uh, they may call the chief in now to testify. Uh based on his statements he made. And usually chiefs do not testify and do not like to testify. However, uh, a sharp defense attorney may now say, no, I'm bringing him in because it shows prejudice against my client. And look, the criminal justice, we all want to be on the same page. And if this guy did this, we want to get him convicted. Making statements like that makes it more difficult to get him convicted. Absolutely, Billy. And I agree with that young lady. I think that uh, definitely 100% we're with the sheriff on that. We understand it. We know where he's coming from, but there's just that little bit of a line that needs to be kept on the other side, so to speak. Uh, you know, you got to walk a, a very, very tight space uh, when you're making public statements about such a serious case. And uh, again, uh, it could be construed uh, as prejudice towards their client. And that may be the defense going down the line, you know? So uh, we're just trying to caution about that. That's our opinion. Um, you know, you get caught up in the moment. And like I said, the emotions take over and just having to break the news to that family, knowing that there's a four-year-old girl without a mother and that beautiful family uh, that doesn't have uh, a sister or daughter, you know, so it's trying. These are the things that us as law enforcement officers, we carry that that pain with us throughout our careers, throughout our lives. And, uh, you know, listen, when we got the word, when we were on the air the other day, I mean, we were both a little choked up about it to, to know, you know, there was that still that outside chance that she could have been still alive. And uh, when it came over and we went on the computer and, and we confirmed it, that yes, there was a press conference and the body had been found and identified as her. It was, it was quite upsetting. And everybody and all of our listeners, all, our, all of our uh, subscribers, all of our fans, they, uh, you know, they mentioned it in the chat. So everyone was quite upset about this. And, uh, you know, so, but as a professional law enforcement officer, you do have to maintain composure and it's in the best interest of the case, as Billy pointed out, to uh, not make uh, those kind of statements. Unknowns has come to a devastating conclusion. She loved her community and her community loved her back. Um, I'm just, I'm humbled though and forever grateful for everyone, everyone. We helped bring her home. Corley was last seen meeting her boyfriend, Marcus Spanavello, at this beachside restaurant. They were swapping custody of their four-year-old daughter. Six days later, Corley's body was found buried in this Springville bar, 289 miles away. Diane Fisher lives just up the road. I'm sorry that it happened. Um, it could happen in any community, and I don't, I'm not afraid. Uh, God's got this. So what is Spanavelo's connection to the property where Carly's body was found? We tracked down the property's owner. He tells us that Spanavelo was helping him renovate this home, which is only about 150 yards away from the barn where Carly's body was buried. Spanavelo was arrested southwest of Nashville over the weekend. He faces charges of destroying Carly's phone and lying to investigators at this point. But the sheriff's office says those charges could be upgraded. We hate it that Cassie is passed away, but it's good to get closure for the family and it's good to keep this dirtbag in jail where he belongs. Corley's daughter was found safe. Her family looks forward to reuniting with her and honoring her mom's life. Our main focus is just going to give her a beautiful celebration and get Santa back home with us. Today's autopsy should shed light on Corley's exact cause of death. 
So, folks, there you have it. A uh, couple of questions were answered. He was there. He was about 150 yards away from that barn. He was doing work on a house that was right close by that barn. You also saw what we were talking about, Sheriff Johnson making those statements. And, I, I you know, I, I 100%, you know, it's like preaching to the choir. I agree with him. However, I still cringe when he said it because I know the ramifications of saying something like that can be uh, – can be deep, fast, and you know, they'll be they'll be louder than when he said it. Believe me, it'll be amplified. You know, in, in the NYPD, we have uh, uh, press conferences on a daily basis uh, in my time on the police force. But usually, the detective that is actually investigating investigating the case or the people closest to the case aren't the ones ma- uh, doing those press conferences. A lot of times, it would be uh, a chief, the police commissioner, a high-ranking member of the service, and they actually have a uh, an office in the, in the police department, the NYPD, called Deputy Commissioner of Public Information. So the Public Information Office a lot of times would give that information. So uh, I, he might be very close to it, and that's probably why he said the things he said. And, and again, we're not criticizing. We agree. He's a, He is a dirtbag. He's a scumbag. He killed this young lady uh, and left uh, that little baby without a mother. So we agree with that. Uh, again, though, yeah, the, the legal process has to you know, uh, has to, uh, the wheels of justice have to turn and we have to follow it and we have to maintain a professional uh, posture in the public opinion. Folks, we'll take a quick break for a commercial. John Beattie Law, www.jbeattielaw.com. John Beattie is a renowned personal injury attorney. He also retired as a decorated NYPD sergeant. For over 15 years, John has litigated some of the largest accident and malpractice cases and verdict settlements in the country. Despite the shutdown incurred during COVID-19, John recovered nearly $20 million in settlements for a small number of accident victims. He uses the best retired detective investigators on every case to bring quick and favorable outcomes for his clients. John comes from a proud NYPD and FDNY family. He was an active sergeant in Brooklyn North and supervised in the legal bureau. John is a proud member of the Honor Legion and the Blue Knights. John Beattie litigates across the country for seriously injured victims and has helped recover over $200 million for grieving families. Call John now for a free consultation. John Beatty, 917-797-9520. You know, folks, we never answered the question before. There's potentially three locations that could have jurisdiction when this is finally determined to be a homicide. Uh, Usually the hard, fast law is the location that... Uh, prosecutes the case is where the body's recovered. However, there's a lot of potential evidence that the homicide occurred in a different location. And you have the Santa Rosa County Sheriff's Office has been running with this. I would think to take the case away from them would not be an advisable thing for any prosecutor to do. So I would think that they will keep the case and uh, it'll probably, the prosecution, in my opinion, We'll stay in Florida. Phil? I agree with you, Billy. Um, in our jurisdiction in New York, wherever the body is found, that usually is the starting point for the homicide investigation. And the amount of investigation that goes into the early stages of homicide investigation, that's when the most critical things are found out. However, if there's a case where a body is found and they quickly can determine that there's a bloody crime scene, let's say, in another location that's not in the same jurisdiction, it might be tossed over to that uh, existing jurisdiction. But it sounds like... Uh, this case went on for seven days before the, uh, or six or seven days before the body was actually recovered. So all of that investigation went in. And I think that uh, basically since it was started by Santa Rosa County, I think that they'll probably have the jurisdiction of the prosecution. Uh, we can make the store, uh, you know, make the points during the, during the trial that, you know, this happened where in this state and the body was recovered in that state. And, uh, you know, uh, those are all, you know, points and facts of the case. But I think that the prosecution and it seems likely that uh, the homicide probably did occur in Florida, too. I don't think that, uh, you know, that uh, she was abducted in Florida and then taken to all these other locations before she was murdered. So it's it sounds like it's going to be uh, I agree with you, Billy. That's going to be a, a Florida case. Yeah. You know, we did the case. um and it was also on New York Homicide uh, on Oxygen Network, the Ahmed Sanguian case, the John Jay College student who was murdered in 2006. And she was uh, taken from a bar in Manhattan. 
and forced into a van and then taken to Queens, where we, we believe that was the murder location, and she was dumped in Brooklyn. Uh, the 7-5 squad that covers the location where the body was found in Brooklyn actually were the uh, detective squad of note that investigated that case. And I know there was a lot of behind-the-scenes politics when that occurred. Of course, Manhattan probably wanted the case, and then Queens probably wanted the case because, in fact, it probably occurred in Queens. So when you put the criminal justice minds together, they come up with the same reality of who catches the case and a, uh, a practical and a good decision was made to who would investigate the case. I think you hit the right point there, Billy. Practical. It's practical because the body was found in the 7-5. The detectives began the investigation. They uncovered all the locations where she had been the night before, and they also uncovered who the perpetrator was, and eventually that the crime scene probably took place in Queens. However, that wasn't in the first hours of the body being found. That was something that happened days down the line. So, uh, again, you know, you have to use common sense and practicality here. Uh, the investigative team that's right on it and, and uncovering all the evidence, um, you know, there's a, a thing called chain of evidence. If they're recovering the evidence, why would we then start days later to give it to another jurisdiction to, uh, you know, take the lead and, and take the investigation and then try and prosecute it? It would be very complicated. And uh, you use the right word there. Practicality, common sense is the reason that those decisions are made. Margaret Hearn, I wonder if Cassie and uh, Quartz knew he was taking sailor and leaving with friends when working. As a mother, I'd be very upset my daughter being left with people I don't know. 100%, you know, that's Absolutely. Uh, a family court thing. And, you know, that's another part of this investigation. Family court has a case on this. I don't know how long, well, they got to, uh, had to have been together at least, four, you know, or prior to the four years. The child's four years old. So I don't know how long the family court cases on this couple, but they obviously had some problems and there was a child in common. So there's a lot of things we, from what we're hearing. And again, nothing is confirmed. He, other by then the family of uh, Cassie is that he wasn't paying his child support payments. So that's a violation of family court law also. And in regards to that, I believe you can be held in contempt of court. If you don't do what you agreed to do uh, by the family court. Yeah, Billy, I think that that was the uh, sticking point in this whole thing was that he didn't want to pay the child support. His time had run out. The court ordered him to pay it. I'm not sure, but I believe I read that his license had been suspended or was going to be suspended. I know that that's one of the things that they now attach to uh, child support. If you don't pay, they, they, they take away your ability to drive, which could be your ability to work. So it, it, it kind of... Uh, you know, uh, puts a person in a position to make those payments. That goes to the motive of this case. Uh, it seemed like he didn't want to make the payments. He didn't want to uh, support his child that he, he went to tears about his child, but yet he didn't want to pay for her, uh, you know, for her support. So, uh, you know, that may be uh, the reason, the motive for the murder in this case. And again, I think uh, that, uh, that news clip that you showed of his arraignment, uh, you know, those crocodile tears, I'm not buying it. Uh, he doesn't uh, show me that he's uh, got any kind of remorse. Had he, he could have, uh, you know, said, I, I, I snapped, I, I did what I did, but here's where she is. And, you know, uh, he wants the best for his child, but he didn't go that route. He's going the uh, no remorse route to me. Complicated in the chat. How does Polk County get away with making his public forum speeches on his arrested perpetrators alleged. You put some of the words in front and behind where they should have been, but I understand what you're trying to say. Well, you want the law enforcement agency that's involved to be doing press conferences to inform the public and other people, because people could worry, what if they didn't know who in fact was the suspect in this case? Is there a crazy murderer out there that's uh, kidnapping women from the beach? So Law enforcement needs to allay the fears of the public. How much they give out to the public is there's a professionalness to that also. Many times in different uh, police jurisdictions, they'll have a public relations. In the, uh, the case of New York City, they have a unit called Deputy Commissioner of Public Information. And they give out information to the press that's been cleared by the powers that be to be released. 
most of the time on the NYPD, a very high-ranking uh, a chief or above, or sometimes a captain, will give uh, the information in a press conference. The public deserves to know. We're a free society. They deserve. But however, how much you release and what you release is a skill to that. Yeah, there's certain things uh, on any investigation. It doesn't have to be a homicide that you're not going to want released to the public. And again, I cited this uh, in previous shows when we had uh, Chief Boyce on last, last week. We talked about it in the uh, Sanguine case. Uh, uh, actually, it was in the uh, in the case from out in Howard Beach, um, Katrina Vitrano, where there were things that only the person who committed the murder could have known. And when they eventually did have a perpetrator and he made statements, he talked about those specific things. That's how they knew they had the right guy. Uh, they were very tight lipped about specifics of uh, what took place during the murder and uh, only he knew about it. So those are the types of things that uh, law enforcement is not going to be, uh, you know, given out to the public. Uh, the public has a right to know about things like Billy said, uh, whether or not there's concern to be, uh, you know, alarmed about uh, possible serial killers and all the rest. So uh, that's why there is uh, press conferences and there is releases to the media and, uh, you know, uh, newspapers and, and whatever it is. So uh, the public has a right to know. It just that the public doesn't have the right to know everything. And in good time, we will find out the cause of death. We will find out uh, exactly what the police know and what they believe transpired down the line at court hearings and then at the trial. Story, this video on the right side of your screen coming from our sister station, WITCBS 42 in Alabama. This is this video, Springville, Alabama, where Carly's body was reportedly found inside that barn you just saw in a shallow grave, according to deputies. Now, Cassie Carly's ex, Marcus Spanavello, he has been arrested in Tennessee on multiple charges, including tampering and destruction of evidence. But it's important to note he is not charged with Cassie Carly's murder at this time. Charges could be coming in the days or weeks ahead as this now enters a new phase in the investigation. He is now awaiting extradition back to Florida. Meanwhile, in Huntsville, Alabama, the autopsy is being performed on Cassie Carley's remains. This Monday, April 4th, 2022, Cassie Carley was found dead less than a week after being reported missing out of Navarre Beach, Florida. That's where she was last seen. She was out to pick up her young four-year-old daughter uh, in a custody change, picking up her daughter from Spanabello, who you saw there on our screen earlier. Now, a lot of people have been messaging me asking about uh, when the four-year-old daughter is going to be reunited with the Carly family. The last that we had heard is that the young four-year-old daughter is in Tennessee, and she's awaiting being reunited with the Carly family on the Florida Panhandle. We do expect there to be some news at some point soon. The family does at least expect there to be news soon about being reunited with the four-year-old girl. We do have updates, more updates on the story as well. It's on WFLA.com, the WFLA app, as we continue to follow the very latest on the Cassie. So folks, a very uh, huge issue for a lot of people is um, who and when is someone going to get uh, custody of little sailor? You know, everyone is concerned about that. We're all concerned about that. I would hope that it's Cassie's family, you know, because she lived with Cassie and Cassie's dad. So why turn her life upside down? And, uh, give someone else custody. You know, uh, I would think the court uh, will have some wisdom in this and uh, release custody to, to Cassie's family. I hope they do. I got to agree with you, Billy. I mean, it's clear to me from seeing multiple interviews with that family, they look like a very nice family, a loving family. I don't think there could be anything better for Little Sailor than to be with the people that were closest to her mom. Uh, you know, I don't know what... Uh, Marcus's family is like if they were involved in her life. Uh, it se doesn't seem likely, but uh, like you said, wisdom is probably going to be uh, used in this case by the family court process. And uh, she needs to be close to uh, the people that were closest to her mother. Like you said, she lived with, uh, you know, uh, the grandfather and uh, which was Cassie's father. I believe the mother as well. And it seemed like uh, the sister Rayanne was very, very close with her. 
There were pictures of Rayon with the with the Cassie and the baby. So uh, they want her back. They want to raise her. They want to love her. And that's just what that child's going to need. Let's face it, that uh, uh, child was presented with uh, tragic events in her life at four years old. So I think the court would agree to uh, you know to try and keep her uh, as close to where she was you know, for the last four years as possible and around the same environment that she was around in, in the, you know, the short four years of her little life. So folks, to recap uh, again, um, everyone is waiting, of course, for the autopsy results to tell us the cause and the manner of death that hasn't been released yet. So what we're talking about is we're talking about building a case against, um, the perpetrator in this case. And we obviously know, uh, that Marcus Spanavello is the number one suspect in this case. He's been arrested. However, the charges have not been filed for murder yet, and uh, that could happen as soon as the autopsy results come down. However, my feeling is that since he is fighting extradition, they may hold back the charges and file those charges with the petition to have him extradited back to Florida. That's just my feelings on this. I'm uh, no expert. I'm not a district attorney. I'm not an attorney. But I just think that could be the strategy of law enforcement in regards to this extradition. Sounds logical, Bill. I mean, that's the posture that they've been taking all along. I don't think that uh, they're going to discontinue that at this point. That's a very logical uh, way of thinking. Bill, we're going to take a quick break. We're a commercial break. Yeah. Joe Murray, attorney at law. Have you found yourself in a jam? Are you in need of legal counsel in the New York area? Do you need a victim's advocate? Well, Joe Murray is your man. He's not only an experienced trial attorney, he's also a retired 15-year member of the NYPD. He literally knows both sides of defense. His website is jmurray-law.com. His telephone number is 646-838-1702. Zero two, excuse me, or you could email Joe at joe at jmurray-law.com. The best way to hire the best officers for your competition does. With an extremely limited job candidate pool, law enforcement agencies have to quickly identify and hire qualified police officers before another agency does. That's why nearly 70 U.S. agencies have updated their hiring process to include iDetect, a fast affordable, non-invasive, unbiased, and automated lie detector. It accurately identifies lies by watching the eyes. Eye detect also helps solve crimes. Converis CEO Todd Mickelson spoke with us about stories how eye detect is changing the way the world detects deception. Remember, the eyes don't lie. Converis.com, 1-801-331-8840. You can email them at info at Converis.com. Com. So a lot of things with this case, um, we're talking about the evidence. Uh, what is pointing all the evidence to Marcus Spanavello? Uh, they obviously have a, uh, a history, a history of potential domestic violence. The family knew uh, lots about a lot of threats against uh, Cassie. Uh, in fact, the brother spoke about how Marcus had threatened her with a gun or pointed a gun at her. All of these things, when we talk about domestic violence, they they can't be kept, you know, private. They have to be reported to the police. I mean, we can't stress enough. Look at how what happened in this case. You know, well, look what happens in a lot of domestic violence cases. You cannot ignore this stuff. It's just it leads to a murder, and that's what what happened in this case. Billy, I'm just going to refer back to the show we did last week or so. Uh, when we had on Leslie Morgan Steiner and Dr. Debbie Goodman, uh, there's a, a statistic that they cited in that show. And you guys can go back and check it out. 500 women are killed yearly in domestic violence cases. And as I said before, over 70% of those murders happen after the victim has left the abuser, the domestic violence abuser. So uh, those are big numbers. It's scary. Uh, shining a light on this uh, could not uh, be more important. Uh, I think this is a, 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 a story that has to be told. And, uh, you know, I think that the family has already started a, a Cassie Carley Foundation that they want to uh, address and uh, spotlight and highlight uh, 
uh, victims of domestic violence, whether they be male or female. And uh, we can't let this young lady die in vain. There has to be something good that comes out of uh, this horrible situation. And uh, hopefully talking about it, uh, getting the word out and letting people know. Uh, one of the things that Leslie Morgan Steiner noted was that there was safety nets in place. She was afraid to leave the the horribly violent uh relationship that she was in. But when she did decide to leave on the coaxing of two police officers, uh, there was uh, people that were willing to help her. Uh, she cited about a locksmith who uh, couldn't come for a week when she wanted to change the locks on her apartment or wherever it was she was staying. And uh, when she explained her story to him, he dropped what he was doing and he went there within an hour and changed the locks. And she said those two things that she cited, the two police officers and that locksmith, what made her believe that she can there was a way out of the relationship very very important very important there is there's uh different uh you know uh, uh safety nets within the police department the family court system the criminal court system there are uh, many uh volunteer agencies that uh help people who are in situations of domestic violence to help them to get out of that situation uh, unfortunately in, in this case, and it just, it's, it's very hurtful that, uh, it didn't work out for uh, Cassie, but, uh, if you're in a, uh, violent relationship, uh, we said it in the last couple of shows, don't walk away, run away and don't look back. Catherine, 1967. You do have lots of females that fake domestic violence, partly because of that. It takes extra time to investigate the real cases. I have lots of stories that I've seen in shelters. You know, it's it's a, it's such a difficult um, it's a difficult crime to investigate. Yes, there's false there's false reports of all kinds of crimes. However, we know from be, doing what we did, being police officers, detectives, sergeants, uh, for all the years we worked for the NYPD, and just reading how many people reach out to us in the chat, and how many people are former victims in the chat, and it's heartbreaking to see what some people go through. And that statistic that Phil cited by our two guests last week, that most of the violence or most of the homicides occur after they have left. So they can't even get away from some of these, these scary people, really scary, these relationships. They can't even get away because that's when most of the murders happen, when they decide to flee uh, a bad, bad relationship and to get the hell away. And it's, Complicated by many things, finances, children in common, uh, housing. All of those things complicate these cases. It's very easy to say, oh, I would just leave. But I can tell you this. I taught college for 10 and a half years, all inner city kids. And I knew so many of those kids had domestic violence stories. And I told them all the time, no one should be putting their hands on you. If you get hit, you get you get the hell out of there. You know, and they... That was almost a different culture because we spoke about the Ray Rice case. And if you guys aren't familiar with Ray Rice was an NFL halfback. And um, there was a highly publicized case where he was at a hotel with his wife and they're caught on video. He knocks her out. He hits her a shot and knocks her out and just throws her over his shoulder. Like this was a SOP standard operating procedure. And when I talked about that case in my classes, the kids were like, Oh, what? What's the big deal? She spit at him. I was like, oh, my God. It was almost no. like, no, that's not okay. And her spitting at him was not okay either. But his reaction to hit and hit it to the point where he knocked her out, and they thought that that was okay. I just, you know, I cringed when I saw that. And the, their reaction to it saying it was, it's okay, you know. Terrible, Billy. I just want to make a comment about that last comment that you put up with the young lady saying that there are women that will fake domestic violence. Now, a good investigator, if you do your due diligence, I mean, I could uh, cite a story. When I was in uh, the 6-0 precinct in Coney Island, I got a report across my desk one day where it was a domestic violence case, and the woman had claimed that she had an argument with her boyfriend and that uh, he dragged her with a car for two blocks 
and uh, that she refused medical attention. So right away, that was a red flag. The minute I called her up, I got her to admit that she wasn't dragged for two blocks. I mean, she, if she was dragged by a car for two blocks, she'd have broken legs. She would have been removed by an ambulance. Uh, it turns out that she had a ripped stocking or something. And, you know, but a good investigator is going to see for those type of things. They do happen occasionally. They're not the... Uh, the large percentage of domestic violence cases, something like that happens here and there. And if a person is using the uh, criminal justice system to exact revenge on a boyfriend or a girlfriend or whatever it is, a, a domestic partner, that's not the right thing. But a good investigator is going to figure that out quite quickly, as I did. Uh, you know, so do your due diligence. And uh, just because there are some of ca uh, people that would do something like that, which is a dastardly thing to do, because as that woman stated, it takes investigators away from maybe investigating a real case. Uh, it's not uh, something that we should say, well, let's just forget about all domestic violence cases. Of course not. We have to shine the spotlight on this. As I said, 500 women killed annually in the United States in domestic violence. So uh, if we have to, you know, uh, do a little due diligence and find out who's uh, given us a story and, and deal with it, we'll do that. But uh, we have to shine a spotlight on this. And again, like you said, Billy, we said it in the last couple of shows. One of our uh, people in the chat said that her father told her, if anyone ever presents you in a relationship with violence, walk away. I say, don't walk run and don't look back, get away from that person. You're not going to save them. They're going to just harm you. Folks. I want to talk about, and we we've spoken about this numerous times about how many times uh, a phone comes into play in homicide investigations, domestic violence, all kinds of investigations. And in this text message, and we talk about really strong evidence Here's a text message that was supposedly sent by Cassie to her father. And I'll just read a little bit of it. I'm sorry, Carl was acting up and I broke my phone. Marcus is working on it. I will stay at his place tonight. He's paying me money to do some stuff around his house. Right away, the family uh, read these texts and knew that this text didn't come from her. That's not the way she writes. I think that they also knew that she would never stay at his house. So it was clear that he sent this. Follow-up text is, um, no, the screen is jumping all over the place. Let me see if he can get this fixed, and I'll call you. Why wouldn't she call him using his phone? I asked right. immediately. You know, right away you know that this is like some devious mind trying to cover their tracks. Here was another thing. Sailor is with me. She wanted to be dropped off in the middle of nowhere and destined with sailor i told her i wouldn't let sailor go like that to give me an address and i take them to it yeah cops already called me and might call again for more questions if they do i will apparently everybody will be asking me that so i'll just copy and paste what i told your father i mean just not even believable that you know so completely he weak completely He's trying to cover his tracks while this is going on, while live, live. He's trying to cover his tracks, and he's thinking of how to throw off the investigators while this is a live investigation. He obviously didn't think it through. He was going to send the investigators into Destin to look for uh, uh, Cassie. And again, it's self-serving statement. Uh, you know, I, yeah, I have sailor, but she wanted to go there and completely, completely out of character for her. Uh, she had told her family, she was going out of the house and would be back shortly. She was just going to pick up her daughter. Uh, you know, there was no talk of going to visit anyone in Destin or Destin or any place like that. And, uh, so again, uh, another tact, uh, another tactic that he tried to employ to throw investigators off. And like you said, uh, uh, Billy, you know, it's, it's, a uh, a cover his own butt uh, statement and in, in that text message. And, uh, you know, he's just trying to give himself some type of an alibi or an explanation as to what happened to her. Uh, I think it all fell apart, obviously. And uh, we talked about how these abusers, they get uh, blinders on, they, they get tunnel vision that they just, they, they don't want to, uh, you know, they, they don't want to end the relationship or they want to, you know, hurt the other person and they just don't see anything else but that. And that seems like what happened in this case. Yeah, it's, uh, it, it's very sad. This whole situation is very sad. And we just want to let everyone know that's watching this, listening to this, 
that there are real victims behind this. You know, uh, Cassie, of course, has a young four-year-old daughter named Sailor, a sister and a brother, loving family, all kinds of friends. She apparently was getting her life together or was, was living a, a great life. She was the happiest she had ever been. And uh, this is what occurs. And, we, you know, sometimes when we follow these real crime stories, we forget that with real crime, there are real victims and real uh, people that love the people that were the victims of these real crimes, as we say. And Bill and I on the NYPD, we used to deal with these real victims and these real situations and live these cases. And we understand uh, the police from this Santa Rosa County Sheriff's Office have been living with this since the 27th, and we can't praise them enough. They've done an outstanding job. Uh, they Again, according to uh, Sheriff Johnson, no one slept in over a week, you know. They've they've taken this case through three different states. Uh, they've served search warrants on cars, telephones, houses, bonds, you name it. And I know, folks, when you can't really appreciate what that means, it's not like TV. You say, oh, give me a warrant, and they just hand it to you. You know, someone has to go to court and swear that warrant in front of a judge, and then a judge has to sign off on it or not. Or a judge kicks it back to the district attorney and says, I don't like the way this is written. Change this, 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 and this. So it's nothing. There's no easy button to any of this stuff. Nothing happens quickly, uh, which is what I'm trying to say. One of the points that I wanted to make, Billy, was, uh, you know, if you asked me and, and most, most police officers that had long careers in law enforcement, uh, the hardest thing I ever had to do was making death notifications, whether it be uh, on a Sunday morning and an a, a, a elderly person died and I had to break the news to the wife that your husband is now deceased, or a homicide victim, which I've done uh, a handful of times, go to that uh, family member and tell them uh, your loved one is uh, is now dead and was a victim of a homicide. That is the hardest thing. Making a death notification is probably the hardest thing I ever had to do on the NYPD. Just think about it. Put yourself in a law enforcement officer's position, uh, especially when a person has no idea. I had a missing persons case where a guy was abducted and murdered. Uh, and uh, his family just thought he was out on a bender. They didn't know him. When I had to go break the news to the to the family member, uh, it was one of the hardest things I ever had to do. Like I said, and uh, it's 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 not easy. It's something that stays with you. Uh, you'll remember it for the rest of your life because uh, you're rocking that person's world. You're destroying that person's world uh, when you're giving them that news. And uh, who wants to be the bearer of bad news? You know. So uh, that's one of the hardest things I, I would say most law enforcement offices ever have to do there's a lot of hard things don't get me wrong you know when you're in gun battles and all the rest of it but uh that specifically it's such a personal thing of nature and you usually don't do a death notification over the phone you'll usually do it in person so uh not an easy thing this is uh cassie's sister i just want to play a little bit of this name out there we want to be as loud as possible Ray and Carly told eight on your side. She's certain her sister didn't send these text messages from her phone the night she vanished. The text messages my father received from my sister's phone were nothing of typical speak my sister would have said. Investigators have not named a person of interest, but the Santa Rosa County Sheriff says Marcus Spanavello was the last person to see Carly when she went to pick up their four-year-old daughter during a custody exchange. And it was actually supposed to happen in Destin. It wasn't normal for her to be meeting him there. The sheriff says they located her car at the meetup spot in this Navarre Beach parking lot. And what we found concerning was inside that car was Cassie's purse. Sheriff Bob Johnson says detectives spoke with Spanavello in Birmingham, Alabama. They also found Carly's little girl. She's safe, but Carly's sister says... She is probably scared out of her mind, wondering where her mother is. The FBI and FDLE are involved in this investigation and the intensifying search to find Cassie Carly. It's amazing the village that Cassie has built, that have come together and are literally just putting all of our heads together and sharing and searching and thinking and praying that she gets to come home. Well, Justin, investigators did an interview with uh, the father of Cassie's daughter. What did they learn from that? Well, Keith, the sheriff did not share details, but he did say detectives want to speak with him again. At this point, he has not been charged with a crime. 
So that was uh, early on in the investigation, but it just shows you, right, while this whole investigation was live, there were lots of red flags. Uh, we've They followed up on all of them. And folks, we're going to stay with this case, obviously, when it breaks, when they give um, the autopsy results, the manner and the cause of death. We'll, we'll come up live on that. But as uh, as of now, they haven't come back with that. And as we were saying, it might be a strategy thing that they're not going to release it until they file the extradition papers. That's a distinct possibility. Folks, again, if you're not subscribed to us, please go on our YouTube, hit the subscribe button, give us a thumbs up, ring that bell. Guys, th- I want to thank everyone for listening today. And uh, on behalf of myself and Phil Grimaldi, we're going to follow this case uh, right to when it goes, uh, someone gets arrested, and we're pretty sure we know who that's going to be. Bill, last words. Last words. Um, I mentioned the Cassie Carley Foundation that her sister Rayanne Rayanne is going to uh, uh, start and uh, it's going to be targeted to uh, domestic violence victims. Uh, Also, there's a GoFundMe page that you can find. I made a small donation last night. Um, uh, You know, I guess uh, it could go towards uh, Little Sailor's uh, you know, to help sailor and, and to help maybe uh, with the funeral costs and stuff like that. So again, uh, this is a very, very sad case. As Billy said, we're going to stay on it and we're going to hope to maybe do some more domestic violence, uh, a show on domestic violence. Uh, we need to shine a big spotlight on this. Uh, one victim is too many, as I've said before. And uh, so let's uh, just keep uh, Cassie, her family and little sailor in our thoughts and prayers. Folks, have a safe night. Thanks so much for listening. Stay safe, everyone. Whatever.